Loudspeaker Studios. I'm Chess Kangas. I worked once with Will Keenan, so you don't have to. And you're listening to Talking Troma with Zach Fine. Tromaville, and welcome to episode 13 of Talkin' Troma with your host, me, Zach Vines. The show where me and a special guest fight the forces of evil with holy water and hip-hop while watching a trauma movie, and then we pair it with a non-trauma title for a fantasy double feature. But first, let me introduce my special guest. He has been in the convention trenches with the Troma team. He has been a voice for indie hip-hop on the airwaves. He's a journalist. He laid down tracks with Colt Cabana, Mac Lethal, Childish Gambino, and many, many more. One of my favorite rappers with his newest album, Small Hours, out now. Let me introduce to you, Chaz Kangas. Greetings from Tro Minneapolis. So happy to be here. Big fan of the show. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for coming on, dude. Hey, thanks for having me. So we go way back, um, as well as like a few past guests on the show. Uh, we met each other way back on the Troma message board days. Yeah, a subsidiary of Tromaville.com. Where do you live? So, <laughs> I miss yeah, having a I miss having a Tromaville.com email address. Yeah. I, I miss how um you, they used to tell you on the website. Or on the Troma VHS box art and DVD art to go to Troma.com slash home. Yes. <laughs> instead of just straight up Troma.com. <laughs> I remember on the message boards, you were one of the more um, vocal uh, vocal posters on there. Always, mm-hmm. you know, always saying what movies you love. But what stuck out to me about you was you would also promote um, your rap albums that you were doing or songs that you were doing. And I you know, it just thought it was unique because it was, you know, a lot of trauma fans or filmmakers, but very few musicians unless they were in like a punk band or something. So mm-hmm. I thought so I checked out your your music back then. And then like even stuff like uh, Two Girls, One Christmas uh, would stand out to me. <laughs> yes, uh, the, the, the odds. Um, yeah, that's, you know, it's interesting that trauma itself and a lot of the fans, I think it part of it could just be the area of new york that a lot of the movies especially like the during the 90s era would come from a lot of that lower east side scene which is such largely a punk rock scene you know you have cbgbs down there you had the continental down there and so there was like a shoulder to shoulder like visible presence with you know the punk rock aesthetic and even that first wave of 80s nostalgia that happened in the the mid 90s people would have and trauma would be such an accessible touchstone to it as well as we, you know, we talk about these movies as cult classics and feeling like you're part of that same cult part of that counterculture with trauma and with punk rock so i think that trauma generally has gone and plus you have like the go-kart records connection to like terra firmer yeah and 
but I think like the the hip hop connections that Troma has kind of not with no intention at all, like not intentionally, but it, it's been sort of somewhat understated. Like you have a movie like Stuck on You that has the first appearance of rapping that's in cinema, like the first time you see rapping in a movie and it's rabbis. But the first time you see like actual since the advent of hip hop rapping in a movie is in Stuck on You. And you look at something like Story of a Junkie, which has the first cinematic use of Grandmaster Flash and Melly Mel's The Message. It's wild that there are these direct, important, pivotal things that Troma has in the hip-hop world and how, like a lot of Troma's innovations, has gone uh, unchampioned for so long. So um, I was happy to, as much as I can, uh, bridge that gap or sort of make that connection within it. And I think that there is, you have the people who aesthetically you know especially now who've discovered trauma through through other means and different generations and you know it's it's uh and then i think there's a lot of kinship in the, the hip-hop diy aesthetic with the trauma aesthetic the one hip-hop thing i i always remember like lloyd talking about was how the fat boys threatened to sue trauma over the fat guy goes nutsoid title it was originally fat boy goes nutsoid so i just thought that was kind of funny <laughs> that's right that's right um yeah, I forgot about that, but that's kind of a, they kind of had a point, I got to say, like looking back on it, like years later, like I, I'm sure if um, Troma, if the movie was called uh, LL Cool K goes nutsoid, like, yeah. <laughs> or LL Cool J spelt J-A-Y goes nutsoid, then LL Cool J might have had a point, you know, or yeah yeah. <laughs> if they called it the Furious Four goes nutsoid and they'd be like, hang on now, like yeah but especially I think, I think, when that movie came out it's not like somebody at the trauma offices didn't hear about the fat boys mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> like the, the biggest hip-hop groups in the world at that point were essentially run dmc houdini and the fat boys like yeah so. just a, just around the corner from the offices too it's not like it's like mm-hmm. oh that's a it's a west coast thing like we never yeah. heard about it yeah, there's something that's bubbling up in port arthur texas the fat boys like no like this is the most important cultural counterculture movement happening in north america <laughs> is happening in the same city so on the same like probably literally the same street too and you consider the 42nd street theaters and you know where stuff like you know wild style and beat street played in those days yeah <laughs> Crush, crush groove especially like yeah it's it's like what one year removed from crush groove and like probably a year same year as disorderlies like that's while the fat boys were putting out movies well so. and it's it's pretty funny because uh you know jumping ahead quite a bit but like looking at like the cast and crew of who worked on uh the movie we're going to talk about a lot of them worked on like crush groove and mm-hmm. um and the run dmc tougher than leather and stuff like that which i thought was the movie we're talking about is femme fontaine killer babe for the cia no yeah (laughs) Yeah, the gunshots are part of the title (laughs) oh yeah yeah i I didn't mean to interrupt you i just thought that there was a good moment for a joke which is true trauma the trauma way of performing (laughs) anyway as you were saying i do want to know though uh what was your first introduction into trauma movies all right so we all have a certain age i think have that image of toxie with the toxic crusaders and the the usa cartoon express and having the toxic avenger and toxic crusader comics on marvel um just popping up with ads in the same time in the back you know when like x-men and things started getting really hot but i'd say like my major love affair with trauma began in the february of 2000 i was renting i remember 
the Hollywood video on Central Avenue had just gotten Cannibal the Musical. And while it was the updated box art for it with the blue box, as the fans know it, the tape itself was the one from 96. So, and I was someone who was renting a lot of movies. I, I really like movies. I wasn't like looking like super outright to so the cinephile I would become, but I was someone who would really enjoy going to the video store, renting two, three movies a weekend, checking them out. So I rented Cannibal the Musical and because I recognized uh, Trey Parker from South Park. And I remember reading a little bit about Cannibal the Musical from a Rolling Stone article like a year or two prior and seeing the toxic Avenger pop up before the industry in the trailer is like, Oh, I, I remember that guy from when I was uh, watching the, the USA cartoon express. And then I remember the trailers in order were, um, you know, you had Sergeant Kabuki man, Tromeo and Juliet bugged frostbiter. Um, I think there was one more. The, the rowdy girls. No, this was 96. Oh, the so, 96. Yeah. Rowdy Girls, Rowdy Girls, Terror Firmer, and Citizen Toxie were the ones on the, the blue box, uh, the proper tape from that. So this was, let's see, it was Frostbiter, Bugged, um, Kabuki Man, Tromeo. It's going to get me. Um, <laughs> I have this tape too, so I'm like trying to remember. <laughs> going through the old the old mental Rolodex. <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome to the two guys remember movie trailers on VHS podcast. Um, show, show Chaz, what, what were the trailers on? Uh... Yeah. Well, I remember about the SP tape versus the EP tape or SLP tape. Um, uh, yeah, but anyway, so point being, these were all movies I hadn't heard of that all looked so different from anything I'd ever seen. And I was like, pretty blown away that these things that had such a cool different aesthetic to it existed and then there was the introduction from the trauma team itself the one that has lloyd kaufman in it um and you know and uh jane jensen tiffany shepis uh james gunn as the angry boom man um the, the role that catapulted him to greatness yes <laughs> and so watching that and being like oh what a cool introduction what a cool thing that they have like this intro and it really at that point felt like, oh, this is, this feels like a kind of a cool universe. And prior to that, like I was, I had recently gotten into a lot of the movies from 99 that were misunderstood that you didn't really get to see until they were on video, like Idle Hands and Jawbreaker. And just seeing that merge of horror and comedy that prior to that, my brain didn't really put together that you could like mix genres like that. So seeing Campbell the musical. And then the very next weekend I rented uh, the toxic Avenger and watched it with my mom and the R-rated version. So, <laughs> you know, we got plenty of nudity, but didn't see a full head crushing. And I was just blown away that this horror comedy was just, you know, full fledged horror comedy. And uh, so I was talking to um, some of my friends in school and like uh, my buddy, Matt Amundsen, who is my best friend, he was, he had seen class at Newcomb high about six months prior and he was quoting the um, the mayor uh, character, Pat Ryan Jr. The uh, Was he Peter Bell Goody in Newcomb High as well, or did he have a different name? Um, I, I think he had a different name. Yeah. 
but uh, he quoted him like we. I don't give a what fought what you think became a common thing in eighth grade <laughs> at the Immaculate Conception uh, recess. So I, the very next weekend, like, you know, I had to, I rented Cannibal again and I invited everyone over to watch it. And I'm like, there's something here. We gotta start seeing these things. And a local Hollywood video didn't have um, uh, Kabuki Man or a lot of these other ones. And Kabuki Man was the one he really wanted to see. So the week after that, Matt went to a video update, which was a chain that later became video stardom. And he found uh, Kabuki Man in the action adventure section. And then this video update had something that I haven't seen at any other video store, a section called requested, where they had um, a piece of paper like uh, that you could like write down movies you want to see video update carry. And then they'd get it and then they'd put the movies that were asked for that they didn't have in this section called requested. Like, and it was like a full like section. It wasn't just like a row. It was like an actual like viable That's series. Cool. Yeah. So, um, so Matt was just sort of like looking for anything that had uh, the Toxie, the Troma logo on it. Cause it was two for 99 cent rentals of video update. And so he picked up Kabuki man and then lo and behold in requested, he found a little movie called death by temptation and you know we watched both those were blown away by it and then that just the snowball just started going and suddenly being you know the quest of what video stores can we go to let's walk through and see every single aisle and you know you'd be surprised you know things that would either outright have the um the trauma logo on it and then we picked up uh lloyd's first book all i ever need to know about filmmaking i learned from the toxic avenger and started making it a point to like, you know, read and try to memorize like all the names of the trauma titles so that when we would go back to these video stores, we'd go through and we'd try to see which names do we recognize. So when we'd see like, oh, even though there was like no real viable trauma image on it, we'd find like feeling up in the comedy section, yeah, uh, monster in the closet in the family section, uh, scream baby scream in the horror section. And we would just start seeing more and more of these. And it, be it became almost like, you know, trying to find Pokemon, like trying to find trauma movies. And once in a while, you'd find ones that would have like a whole bunch of the trauma team video releases with the yellow banner on them that made it like really easy to find. And from there, um, you know, we the Internet had such a connection to it in so many places and trauma.com just had such a cool website at the time and people really didn't have that cool of websites in 2000. And just yeah, and then, you know, then of course, there's a message board there where we found and the fact that Lloyd was just always so accessible. So like at one point, you know, our friends, we started making movies with just our VHS tape and our camera. And um, the first couple ones were improv. Then like I made a feature film my freshman year um, and we had a script for. And then just the fact that Lloyd was just so, so accessible. And it's, it's wild to think about like um, and to this day and like it still is like I remember. Yeah. My senior year of high school, when I was calling him to do uh, this to add like a vocal thing for the a rap album I mentioned. Um, I, I called him and I got off the phone with, I called him from like my school payphone, like during lunch. And, you know, the fact that I could like, Oh, just talk to Lloyd Kaufman in the middle of the day. And I remember hanging up and now everybody said, hey, what, what was that? And I was just talking to Lloyd Kaufman. He knew who Lloyd, Lloyd, Lloyd was. So he said, okay, cool. Now I can get out of the way. I got to call Oliver Stone. And <laughs> it's just, it's something very unique with trauma knowing, you know, to pick like your heroes and you pick like, you know, whose ideology, whose movement you get swept up in. And, you know, whether you want to, the fact that, it, you know, it was 
I don't even want to say an indoctrination because so much of being part of the trauma team was the input and having your own ideas. Yeah. And so I think as well that there's something about trauma that is accessible to, you know, there's such a mixture of like the very highbrow and the very lowbrow to make a nice little unibrow. And <laughs> you have, you know, the people who watch it solely for the, the blood and the guts and the camp and the nudity and which is all well and good. And then you have those who watch it for the ironic reasons, the mocking reasons, the chances to riff on it. Then you have those who watch it for the, um, the aesthetics of like certain eras, the fact that like, you know, here's something that couldn't otherwise exist. Cause that's really why I think trauma movies compared to so many of their uh, contemporary other studios who would put out so many things on VHS and DVD is you genuinely felt whether you liked it or not the trauma movies were someone's artistic vision being completed and being released and again whether they did a good job or a not so good job executing that vision you know it was something done for the sake of creating something they really believed in and i think there's it's hard when you when you're that young and you get so swept up in something like that and wishing there was more of that out there and more of those different things from different studios. Cause a lot of them, you know, and then I'm not, it's a, it's a movie business. You do it to make money. Yeah. But like there's a lot of ones you can tell it's like, okay, this was just, you know, this is something that was put out to just try to be something like this, or this had a reason to try to deliberately be as offensive as possible, or this is out here just to deliberately be as shocking for shock's sake. Whereas like with the trauma stuff, when there'd be something, you know, weird or potentially offensive, there would be an actual constructive reason behind it. Again, whether that execution was good or not is up for debate, but there's a purity of heart, I think, in trauma and a genuine wholesomeness to wholesomeness to how Lloyd and Michael operated that studio and released films. So uh, long story long, that <laughs> is how I got swept up and fully traumatized. Well, it's funny that you and me have a very similar intro to trauma i had a friend who um rented that cannibal the musical from hollywood video and uh, i was a huge south park fan and he knew that i i love south park and um basketball so he um said hey i'll bootleg this uh, movie for you do you want me to leave the previews on i think you might get a kick out of them they're pretty weird they're by this company called trauma i was like yeah sure why not i did not know that was gonna change everything <laughs> yeah like just so vividly and then yeah like seeing that trailer for tromeo and juliet the very first time where it's like mm -hmm. what the hell am i seeing and motorhead is blaring and you have the kabuki man car flip which i didn't know what that was yet mm -hmm. and and the, the, you see this penis with the face coming up but then you see like this pregnant belly that popcorn pops out of followed by rats and it's and i think that's like with trauma movies nine times out of ten you're gonna find yourself saying what the hell am i watching but you're gonna have a smile on your face while you're saying it yes <laughs> and i think that that's like the main appeal and the main draw and to be chasing these different experiences like you know hollywood zap is nothing like igor and the lunatics you know it's there's there's such different movies that are under that trauma banner you know even so from the same directors like wild that you know class nukem high two subhumanoid meltdown and fortress of america were from the same director yeah <laughs> it did um what was like the first time you realized that it's like oh all these movies aren't gonna feel the same 
Oh, so you're asking what's the what's the first Troll movie? Yeah, I like no, um, not necessarily didn't like, yeah. but you like I know for me, um, you know, I saw Cannibal and then like Toxie and Toxie Three, and then I popped in Blood Sucking Freaks, and I was like, Honestly, oh. yeah, for me it was also Blood Sucking Freaks because even <laughs> like um, you know I saw Toxie and I think Blood Sucking Freaks is one that I purchased because I remember my Hollywood video had it, but it didn't have the. Uh, the trauma collector's edition that had the intro from Lloyd promise on the back that wasn't there. And there was the, um, it was the old Vestron release of it. So I waited to, I bought, I purchased that and redneck zombies. I think it was just those two, my first like blind trauma purchase. And I put in a $5 order. No, no, no I take it back. I, they had Eve's beach fantasy a later time that I went, I didn't special order that. So um, that, that was actually another one that like, like, I think I had a double, like I bought blood sucking freaks and then I rented Eve's beach fantasy. <laughs> and so it was like, all right, fellas, let's all watch Eve's beach fantasy. It's like, this is a, not a very fun movie to watch with the room full of your friends. <laughs> well, I remember someone in the trauma team gave me this little nugget that Eve's beach fantasy was actually a hardcore pornography film that just had all the hardcore pornography eliminated from it. Yes. So. <laughs> Um, but I remember like watching it as a kid and thinking, uh, oh, this is actually this is a romantic comedy and like not quite getting the eroticism, just getting more caught up in the whimsy. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, blood sucking freaks. I remember watching because, you know, for, number one, there's no scenes of freaks sucking blood. Number two. Um, yeah, there's just I I didn't watch it as a dark comedy. I was watching it ready for some like sort of slapstick. And but there's just like there's a a darker undercurrent to it than there is something like a surf Nazis must die. Yeah. Or, and, or, and I remember just like watching it and being, especially like, you know, the ending prior to that, every term movie I saw, it had like a unquestionably very happy ending and blood sucking freaks. It's like, yeah, you know, and I'm, I'm sure everyone who's hearing this podcast now has seen blood sucking freaks, but you know, uh, the, the bad guys die at the end of it, but like, you know, to what end, like, yeah, people have suffered, and it's not—it's not really a feel-good comeuppance. Um, it, it took me like a few months later, so I had, to, I had to go from turning from being thirteen to turning fourteen and rewatching it to it, actually finding it funny. Nymphoid Barbarian and Dinosaur Hell um, was like the first sudden shift in pacing for me because at least like Blood Sucking Freak still had that kind of kinetic energy to it. Yeah, um, and like once you get past the the tacked on opening that trauma added to nymphoid barbarian dinosaur hell um it that's a you know the film the, the parking brake goes on like it's an abrupt shift and then um yeah then there's just some that there's some that i've meant to revisit that just did not connect with me when i was that age like i i don't want to put it down because this could have just been that it, it wasn't made for a 13 year old like any of these are but i remember like renting stuff stephanie and the incinerator and scream baby scream and just did not did not land with me um but you know for every one that didn't land like even when i would just like start just buying them for ones i couldn't find like uh escape from hell i really couldn't get into but i've I'm, i've kind of grown to realize oh i just don't connect with uh women in prison films so um but there's so many other ones that i just completely adored and loved and i'd say there's very little very few trauma films i can outright say i regret watching that 
<laughs> same. Yeah, same here. <laughs> you you've mentioned uh, buying a bunch of trauma movies and you've given me a glimpse into uh, your collection. You have a pretty rad collection. I'd like you to talk a little bit about it. <laughs> yeah. At one point, I believe I probably had the largest trauma collection in North America. 2002 was when I started taking my collection to eBay when I just kind of like exhausted all the local video stores and waiting for because like at the rise of DVD, a lot of places were getting rid of their entire VHS collection. And so oddly enough, comic book stores somehow started acquiring all the VHS tapes. So um, that's how I found uh, Ocean Drive Weekend and no, no, I got found screenplay via those means um, and Rock and Road Trip. That's what I was thinking of. So you know, so but at some point, like with eBay, I realized, oh, that guide that Lloyd has in the back of that book, I can just take to it. Because initially what got me the first eBay purchase I ever made is probably the crown jewel of my collection is a 45 radio vinyl that I haven't seen another copy of before since for the movie Waitress that has two radio commercials for Waitress on it. The funniest dish you've ever tasted. And I remember getting Lloyd to sign it uh, later that summer when I went to Comic-Con in San Diego and and Lloyd choosing, you know, rarely not to personalize something, which is cool. Like he he knew better than I did. So he, he signed it, you know, Lloyd Kaufman, a.k.a. Samuel Wise, Samuel Wills. Um, and it's just and to this day, like that's framed like in my room. Um, and so from there I realized, oh, I can like actually just search on eBay. So I would just a regular thing, regularly so would search trauma. And then for the, like, that's how I found uh, rebel love. And that's how I actually wound up connecting with a lot of the trauma filmmakers who I'd reach out to just being a huge trauma obsessive and ask them about their dealings with the studio and getting autographs. Like I met the film, I met the filmmaker who did rebel love or met, I say met, yeah, emailed, I emailed the filmmaker did rebel love. He was really cool. Uh, one of the actors from, they called me macho woman who was really cool. Um, uh, and then later through another series of connections online, uh, Jim Larson and Rob Hayward from Butt Crack were really cool. And yeah, Jim Larson also sent me a copy of uh, Nigel the Psychopath, his first movie pre-Butt Crack, which is oh, awesome. Cool. <laughs> yeah. um, and so and then having eBay and realizing, oh, I can just search for, and because initially it was for ones that I couldn't find anywhere, like Adventure of the Action Hunters. Like that was a big eBay find for me. And then it wound up being ones where as my local video stores closed, the ones that would only like carry one, the, the, the ones that had the only copy of Trauma films I knew. And I was like, uh, someday I might want to see this. and I don't have access to that anymore. So I'd get like the Canadian ballet off that, like the, the late, like the 2000, the 99, 2000, 2001 VHS releases. And so it was uh, cool to, to find and see all these different copies and different ones available and building on that. And then eventually it spilled over into getting the original line of the Toxic Crusaders figures. And um, and then just like when I, I just about annually visit the flying from Minneapolis to New York to visit the trauma studios. And, you know, there was like Doug Sackman or someone else there would give me something cool. Like I have one of the, the Troma's Edge TV signs that they used on the show that has That's a, so awesome. a coffee still built on it. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm proud to have that. And also just going to the different conventions before like the conventions were such a, before like San Diego Comic-Con was such a huge mega multimedia event. Just being able to go and whenever someone be promoting a project, like and getting them to sign it, like um, 
you know, when like Road to Perdition was like being really heavily and I, I walked up to the director and like, hey, you know, I really like this real time movie you did for Troma. And so he signed it and then like Brink Stevens signed it too. And they were really cool about it. I um, got um, I got Brink Stevens to sign my copy of Mommy, uh, which Max Allen Collins did as well. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah, she's she's cool. She also signed my uh, my poster of Fred Olin Ray's Haunting Fear. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, love Brink Stevens. Um, yeah, it's. It's cool, like how cool so many of these people are. The the trauma umbrella that connects and unites us all. So just slowly sort of growing a lot of that connection. And my other, I don't, I'm not going to say my other crown jewel, but I'll say because that's a complete misuse of the term crown jewel. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my let's say let's say my scepter. I guess if we're going to continue the royal uh, metaphor. Yeah. Uh, I have one of the VHS screener copies of Terra Firmer because for those who don't know, uh, Troma would bootleg their own movies before they would do the official VHS and later DVD releases. So they would sell copies of the screeners that they would be sending to theaters to fans. And I remember it was $50 for a VHS tape. And so in my young brain, I was like, well, if it's $50, I got to make it worth it because it was a VHS uh, in a white sleeve. And the movie on it was the exact movie that we know and love, except at the bottom of the screen, it says for bootlegging purposes only throughout the entire thing. So over the years, I got it signed by Lloyd Kaufman, Joe Flyshaker, um, Reverend Jen, uh, Will Kanan, um, the band Flip. Nice. And, yeah. And yeah, they're they're Minneapolis boys. Um, got, I love Flip so much, shout out, especially shout out to, uh, to Bryn. He's such a cool dude. And I think if there's like, another one if it's gonna come to me that i might be missing but yeah so it's cool just to have this white sleeve that's like has all these, these signatures on it and especially really like having the the um in a way it's like a trauma yearbook i guess and then having the the joe flyshaker thing on there and then i have a um uh tromeo and juliet soundtrack cd that's signed by uh lloyd kaufman will keenan uh joe flyshaker and james gunn which is cool um and just just building building those pieces on it and yeah it's it's cool having the collection and knowing especially now because there's some that i have that i look online that i you know for ones that just especially that late era of the ones that came out on vhs that just never made to dvd and i wonder if they just didn't get that much of a distribution because i remember be ones that i would get from visiting the trauma building like um 50 street films put out one called together and alone and there's um some other ones too that I just just didn't seem to come uh, visibly seen when I, I searched them on Google and like there's very little evidence of um I was a teenage TV terrorist anymore anywhere so it's uh it's cool to, to you know like you said like to have like these libraries of these catalogs to be to be a Tromaville historian so. you have in for like the diehard fans out there you have a really cool bootleg tape that you were telling me a story about of uh big gus what's the fuss yes so uh 2003 ad trauma held a festival in minneapolis week long at the st anthony main theater uh bill carter who recently passed on uh put it on and it was a blast so for the first week you know because i was planning on you know going every single day and this was also it's happened to tie in with uh the first week of school starting and the high school i went to is walking distance from it and so the friday it was uh um the first day of the inaugural day of the festival uh was also the first day of school so 
I got my parents to write me a note to leave school early to go to a film <laughs> festival, which I don't know in the history of the American educational system has been attempted, let alone been completely approved by, <laughs> oh, the arts and oh, you're playing an important part in it. So, yeah. So uh, my buddy, Steve DeSalvo, um, who had graduated two years prior, but he, uh, he went to the U of M and so, and they didn't start school for another week. We decorated his car uh all in trauma stuff like we covered it in the eight and a half by 11s and we cut out trauma and colored construction paper and put it around it and then had the big um the big parade uh with you know kabuki man and lloyd we drove from the uh nicky town mcdonald's also rest in peace to uh st anthony maine the nick adams played and it was such a great time and so uh, I was volunteering a lot of hours for trauma doing this, but you know, it's like my passion. Like I loved it. And this almost felt like the fact that I got super into trauma just prior to going into high school. And now like my senior year is kicking off with this citywide celebration of trauma. Uh, someone from trauma had reached out to me and said, Hey, uh, you know, um, do you want any movies or anything for compensation for this? And given that I like volunteered for trauma uh, the previous two years at San Diego comic-con, I, at that point had acquired every single movie that they had released that was at that point in print. And so I said, well, um, you know, the only two movies that you're offering on the website that I don't have a copy of are uh, the girl who returned and big Gus, what's the fuss and not thinking anything was going to come from it. So once the parade ends, uh, Lloyd goes into the bathroom uh, for a bit, you know, and we're hanging out talking. He comes out of the bathroom, walks up to me and he has this, uh, this VHS tape. And he says, Hey, Chaz, you know, just in the bathroom, man, uh, you know, we, we, we found just this, this smelly turd and he handed it to me. And, uh, and it was lo and behold, a tape of big Gus. What's the fuss um, signed by Lloyd Coffin. He wrote on it uh, uh, to Chaz. Uh, this movie smells worse than your diarrhea. And um, on the front of it, uh, he drew a really large Lloyd Coffin signature and a little picture of uh, Kabuki man. And it's, it's really cool to have that. And uh, yeah, I recently tried uh, rewatching it, and I remember like I watched it like slowly right after I got I got it, and I was expecting something just like really really dire, and I was like, oh, there's like some some good like comedic moments in it, you know, being a, a zealous seventeen uh, year old, and then I'd recently converted to DVD and watched it, and uh, yeah, it's not good. <laughs> it is not good. It it's also funny like in the the history of like filmmaking, that's like the movie that he also made for canon like the golden globus canon <laughs> so that it just makes me laugh it's like he didn't do death wish uh, he did big guess what's the fuss yeah <laughs> well i kind of want to shift it up a little bit um you're also uh one of my favorite rappers out Thank there you. um like i said i i heard your some of your songs when you were posting them on the on the trauma the trauma message boards and I had a good time. And then when you put out your album, uh, Personal Reference, I downloaded that. And when I heard you sample the critic right on the first song, I knew it was for me. Um, so how Thank did you, you how'd you get into, into hip hop? Because you are also a scholar in in hip hop. You know, you know the history very well, which is something, you know, I always like following you and, and learning new things. Thanks. Um... Yeah, hip hop, I remember, you know, being at that age where hip hop, while it was still a counterculture, began permeating into children's shows and commercials. 
to where it was just always around. Like, I don't have a memory of a time before hip hop, even if it was just, you know, a rapping frog on the bumpers for the Disney afternoon or Barney Rebel rapping for Pretty Pebbles or the, uh, the VHS tape having the you're as funny as Fozzie Bear rap that the Muppets put out. And so I remember randomly channel serving once and coming across MTV and seeing the, the Buster Rhymes Wuha Got You All in Check video and being a kid who was really into superheroes and these and wrestling and these larger than life characters and realizing, oh, like rappers kind of were like that. There were these personalities that were, you know, with the volume cranked way up and they had these essentially these stories, these narratives they were painting and these adventures you could follow that were also incredibly catchy and just the fantastic linguistic achievements. And it's that kind of just became just like how like with trauma, I tried to see, you know, every trauma thing I could see with hip hop, it began being, I got to acquire as many things as I can. and got to listen to everything. And so you know, I'd go to the local store cheapo and, you know, find the UCD that I want and listen to it and read the liner notes and see who they shouted out then go back the next week and see if anyone they shouted out had put out an album and hear that. And, and it's just, it was just cool seeing like that family tree of hip hop and especially in America and being at an age where the other genres are great. And I love a lot of genres, but to, to a certain degree at that point, there's a certain, for lack of a better term, like homogenization in terms of like the one pipeline that everyone hears the same bands. Everyone has the same influences, no matter where you are in the country, for the most part. Whereas with hip hop, so much of it is still neighborhood based. So much of it is still regional based. I mean, obviously, East Coast artists don't sound like West Coast artists, but even on like a smaller level of that, you know, um, Memphis artists don't sound like Houston artists, you know, North Dakota artists don't sound like South Dakota artists. There's so many nuances and differences and just these like separate family trees to just follow the connection of. And that's uh, what I always find incredibly appealing to me. And why I've always maintained an interest in the genre because, you know, there really isn't a lot of time to get bored. And while there definitely have been fads that haven't been for me, um, for any time, like, you know, I'm not super into like whatever, like a trend in a sound or style or mixing or vocals is, it usually like one year later will have inspired someone else making something completely different that still has its roots in that style that I'm suddenly super drawn to. So that's just how it's always uh, maintained in my interests. And one thing, and may, maybe this is also inspired by trauma a little bit, but I appreciated when uh, you were on the airwaves and you would give independent rap artists uh, their chance to get their play on the radio i always thought that was really cool of you thanks yeah it's um being at go 95.3 here in minneapolis uh where i hosted a show called first impressions uh was sunday nights from 10 to midnight on go 95.3 bringing the best of hip-hops underground underground local international bootlegs and deep cuts uh, all in one two-hour span and i kind of had a open door policy where any artists whether it be like especially super local ones or you know nationwide people would wind up getting interested in the show would, would send things in and being you know having lived in new york for 11 years living in la for a year and just having these different relationships with different scenes and covering different artists for the places i'd written for it just there's so much great music out there and being in a city like minneapolis that if they like something will support something and um within about you know two years like 26 months on the air um this 10 p.m. Sunday night show uh, hit number one in the ratings, but who's counting? And I think a big part of that is because uh, Minneapolis 
supports things that they find that they like. And it was really cool playing a lot of artists for, you know, the first time. So for some, I was a lot of artists, like first radio exposure ever. And then for some other ones, we'd like to maybe getting momentum in different parts of the country, being able to play them out here and be the first to play them out here. And then when they would finally like play here for the first time in like three, four months when they were getting no other support from other outlets, seeing like, you know, that venue packed for them. And while I, you know, I didn't make the songs, but, and so I'm not taking credit for it, but there's just something I like that I am helping point people in the direction of something that I think is really cool. And then that perhaps inspires a local artist around here to take that influence, make something really cool out here. And it helps put money in the pocket and have a good experience out here for whatever artist is touring here. And it's something that I can't believe more people aren't embracing, especially in a medium like radio when you know if you have something to run with it and i know it's because a lot of radio stations their playlists are determined by someone not even in the state they're usually broadcasting in and but even like on these other levels like you know there's so much talent out there it's never been easier to make music record a high quality product and to distribute it and to get it out and get it around and as we've seen you know with streaming people still love music people still voraciously take as much music as they can and they love music that they really love and you know while uh, unfortunately go came to an end last december due to the owners wanting to exit the radio business even though we were still very successful um i wish even if i wasn't at the helm of it something like my show still existed but well, i'm not sure something like that will hopefully come around again like there's still but you know whether my show's on or not like hip-hop continues and there's still so many amazing artists out here and so many amazing artists you know all over the world just you know making their art and it's a beautiful thing you and you have a new album out now uh <laughs> small hours and it's it's fun it's a it's different um i feel than some of your other albums it feels a little more personal mm -hmm. uh but it also i feel like it it helps capture just a lot of the emotion of you know the last few years on there in all these tracks um you want to talk a little bit more about your your album thanks yeah um it definitely i tried to capture a lot of the feelings of that i think comes with isolation uh i didn't want to make an album about the novel coronavirus uh and the pandemic that ensued as a result of it because i I kind of fear that a lot of art being made directly and specifically about that is going to age like a fine milk. And if you look at like the last like major pandemic we had, like the Spanish flu, and I know like, yeah, there's a seventies pandemic and which weren't quite as bad as these things, but let's just as a point, the Spanish flu, um, there was very little, very, very little art created in the aftermath of that. And I think part of that, is when you think, you know, why does, is no one chronicling or talking about this absolutely major historic event that affected everyone? And I think it could just be people were just so happy to be over with it. They didn't want to remember the worst years of their lives in any sort of capacity. So instead, I turned the living at home thing um, internally on myself because I... I used my stimmy check to buy a microphone and a pop filter. Same one I'm talking to you without right now. And really learn through YouTube, like mixing things um, and sound. And um, I've had a, a rough go of it because in addition to, you know, I'm single, I live alone in an apartment. Like I don't have pets. 
um, which in general I like. But, you know, for a pandemic, it can get pretty particularly lonely, especially when you used to going out to shows that are now they're not happening anymore. And I had a, a fire and flood when the sprinkling system malfunctioned um, in late 2020, September 2020, and fashionably late 2020. And during that time when I was like impromptu having to like move apartments by myself, I came across a collection of beats that were created by the producer Blockhead, who's most known for um, working with Aesop Rock. In fact, he and Aesop Rock just dropped a new album this month that's very good called uh, Garbology. And Blockhead also put out a new solo instrumental album called Space Werewolves Will Be the End of Us All. Which, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably love that title. And you're completely right because it's a great title. I highly recommend uh, giving them both a listen. And anyway, so I found this because uh, he and I have known each other since about 2008, 2009. And we used to post on the same message board. And he had posted a selection of beats he had created from 2000 to 2003 that he had just never used on projects just to like kind of like share it. And I remember really liking them. And I saved them to a CDR. And then while moving, I came across it again and I put it on. I'm like, wow, this stuff is actually really good. And, you know, and outside of people, I guess, who, you know, were on that Philoflava message board, you know, over a decade ago, or maybe who've like come across like the, the some of them have been like collections he put on his blog. No one had really heard a lot of these and no one had for sure wrapped over them yet. So I reached out to him, got his permission to, um, to use them and uh, made an album. And I tried to just kind of just focus on, you know, small hours themselves are those hours, like, you know, 1am, 2am, 3am, and those conversations you have with yourself when you're alone with yourself really late at night and dealing with, you know, whether it's, and now it's like magnified during the pandemic, but just, you know, the, the feelings of, you know, trauma, um, of, uh, OCD, which I have of, you know, the, the separation anxiety of just the loneliness, um, losing touch with people and, uh, panic attacks and, and another delightful subjects in the middle of it, there's a really good shrimp cocktail recipe. And so the focus, like with a lot of that album was, yeah, it's experimental as it is. Cause like these beats that he made were part of what was initially a, a, a beat tape. So the, they weren't cut in the standard, you know, 16 bar verse, eight bar hook, 16 bar verse, eight bar hook way a lot of rap things were. And so I decided to use that unpredictable aesthetic that different aesthetic to try to like mimic what it's like having an ocd attack or what it's like having a panic attack or what it's like when you're really beating yourself up over something or like dealing with trauma because a lot of those things there is that level of uncertainty and i think it delivered you know it's it's very different like when i, and when I say it's an experimental record like i want to say it's a rap record and i promise you i'm rhyming and i promise you i'm on beat like, it's not one of those, you know, hyper, you know, you know, rapping, but sound is like, I'm not just like a, a, a slam poet with the beat under me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so I'm really proud of it. Like it, it is, it's definitely, I think, um, uh, like you mentioned, it's different from anything else I've done just in terms of like, it's, you know, it's a different time and, but, and like, I'll, I'll I generally like in next things, I'm going to be probably doing things that are closer to what I've done prior to this. But I figured, you know, yeah, this is going to be my um, my vulnerable, bare bones, trauma, OCD, coping with what's going on right now release. So, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad you like it. It's, yeah, it's really good. And like, like you said, like the song Panic, like it, it, you capture what it feels like to have a panic attack when you're listening to that. You're like, yep, I, I understand it. Or even like, 
like ghost work when you know applying for a job and not hearing or not hearing back from somebody not texting you but like the dread you feel from that like you capture those feelings very well on the album yeah and i think like in particular with the album like with it being small hours there's something about you know whether it's insomnia or just like waking up at a weird time and like when you're replaying the day's events over and over in your head and like in, in the things like that that happen and it just it hurts and hits so much worse in those hours so thank you I'm, I'm glad you dig it and yeah at the end of the show i'm gonna play uh coming attractions oh yeah on there for <laughs> everybody to check out um one last thing though on on the hip-hop thing so my next episode i'm gonna have another rapper on extra cool but i had a dream that you and extra cool uh did a song together about trauma movies and so i tweeted both of you guys and uh, you made my dream come true (laughs) and (laughs) so that that song will play on the next next episode but um i'm I'm glad that we're putting a a teaser for it in the next one so yeah yeah. um and yeah it's that was really uh i really had a fun time working with that Uh, the beat was really cool extra cool is a cool dude his latest release is very good as well and uh it's nice when you can like go deep on themes and something that someone is equally sharing the passion for and um my love of trauma and my connection to trauma and in anything i'd ever worked on whether it was when i was writing for the new york times the village voice and la weekly and complex or whether it was the on-air radio things or in hip-hop like there's certain things when you have such a passion for it you almost feel and this is all entirely in my head because i have ocd but you feel like you almost have like a certain responsibility in doing it justice when presenting it to an audience. And, you know, I didn't, as much as I've always wanted to do a song about trauma, um, I didn't want to do somewhere with just like, uh, yeah, toxic Avenger. Yeah. He crushed a head. Yeah. Toxic Avenger. The blood is red. Like it's, there's someone's like, yeah, you know, that, 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 like, you know, this is a movie that exists and I have seen this movie. Trauma. And, Oh, yeah. how yeah. great it is uh, well that's like that, that you know for first time that the, the initial trauma rap is is great and and uh for a freestyle you know for a freestyle for someone who's not a rapper julie strain's trauma rap is a special place in my heart too um and uh yeah it's uh a funny story about that like uh when i saw trauma the 2000 comic-con and uh, at that point, the trauma rap had only been on the VHS tape of uh, Sergio Lapel's Drawing Blood. And so Julie Strain had asked the crowd, and she was in the, the trauma dais with um, the Rock Me Trauma dais with uh, James Gunn and Lloyd and Chad Farron of Unspeakable Fame. Um, she said, so has anyone here uh, seen the trauma rap? And uh, I clapped, and she said, oh, the, the young man in the front row has seen it. So uh, it was cool to have Julie Strain call me a young man. Rest in peace, Julie. <laughs> oh, um, that's awesome yeah uh that that same just so i can just get more trauma uh anecdotes spilling out here that same comic-con um when i met chad fair and he signed up he gave me a, a poster of unspeakable and signed it to chaz don't let the world shit on you chad Farron. So, <laughs> that's awesome yeah. his movie unspeakable i that's one i want to do on on a future episode that movie is is rough but it's really good yeah um i remember that was one because trauma had the foresight um i i almost said a total lloyd joke there where i said the foresight and the foreskin uh to (laughs) not put region blocking or recording blocking on their dvds so 
I am because I, I believe, I think I may have mentioned I have OCD. Um, I didn't like borrowing my DVDs as a kid, just cause I didn't feel like even my friends who I love held the same reverence for this very delicate disc that I did. So I would just, uh, record VHS tapes of, um, the troll movies. And then like, I'd pass those around and borrow them to them. And, uh, unspeakable is one that, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's stylistically it's very cool. And, um, so I wouldn't say that like the people I showed it to disliked it by any stretch. Like they, uh, they, uh, enjoyed the experience, but it's also kind of the, the people I knew who could be pushed to like their absolute limits. Like that's the thing that pushed them to like their absolute limits. Um, yeah, it's, there's, <laughs> there's, there's some, some brutal, brutal stuff in that. Like unspeakable is probably the combat shock of its era. And this is the only podcast that I can say that on and everyone will immediately know what I'm referring Okay. <laughs> I, on that, I think uh, we should dive into the 1990 film directed by James Bond, the third death by temptation. foretold its fate had been forewarned he did not know that something so sweet could be so evil now the fate of mankind hangs in the balance as kadeem hardison tv's Dwayne wayne this honey i met the other night was bad Superman and Bill Nunn from Do the Right Thing get busy in the first contemporary horror thriller of its kind. James Bond III's Death by Temptation. She's every man's dream and your worst nightmare. She leaves with men and you never see them again. that holy water she's gonna start slobbering and farting and gagging i'm on a mission and nobody can't change my style so if you can't get down stay up the trip for a while i don't mean to be cruel no death by temptation a new movie from trauma with new music by ashford and simpson melba moore naji and freddie jackson this is what Lloyd Kaufman says about Death by Temptation in his book, All I Need to Know About Filmmaking I Learned from the Toxic Avenger. Samuel L. Jackson, Pulp Fiction, Jurassic Park. Kadeen Hardison, A Different World. Bill Nunn, Do the Right Thing, Sister Act. And Melba Moore star in this critically acclaimed studio-quality showcase of young black talent. A succubus with a trail of dead men behind her goes head-to-head with a young divinity student who is questioning his faith. The Los Angeles Times called this a potent whore fantasy, and the Hollywood Reporter said it was fascinating, intelligent entertainment, better than anything Spike Lee's ever done. Ooh. 
I'm like, that's so cool. Going from the very start of, start of it, when you have the Troma Red skyline pop up, but you hear that excellent score instead of the standard, then the normal Troma excellent score that you normally hear the Troma logo leader. Yeah. Uh, from the beginning, you know something is different about this, and it's so stylish and cool. And um, I'm assuming you watched the Vinegar Syndrome release of this before us recording this. I did, and it's uh, cool. it looks so good. It's a really yeah. good Blu-ray. Especially seeing, I mean, there's so much, I mean, especially in the fact that, because everything in this whole movie looks great, but in terms of things that the Troma logo has never looked better than it does on very specifically this Blu-ray release. <laughs> yes. I've seen the old DVD, which is from a tape master, but just like how crystal clear this movie is, which on some on some movies, you know, especially with the vinegar syndrome releases, it helps you see the edges more, but not on not on Death by Temptation. It's just like, oh, this is a very well made movie. Yeah, it's let's just I'm just gonna write out and say it. This might be the best movie in the entire drama library. And Lloyd actually I have an audio clip of Lloyd saying that. In my opinion, Death by Temptation just may be the very best movie in Troma's 200 film collection. It's certainly the best that we have had, in my opinion, that we've had the honor to to uh, be involved in uh, bringing to the silver screen. But yeah, like <laughs> genuinely, like legitimately, and it's better with age. Like it's better than it's ever been. Like now, it's so good. It's really, really good. And the like the pedigree of filmmaking that goes that like was on this movie is ridiculous. Um, so we have the director James Bond the third, who um, he is an actor, but he you know started as a child actor and went to uh, Spike Lee, and he's in School Days, and that's where he met Ernest Dickerson, who's the director of photography. Um, he knew Kadeem Hardison before, but they were also in School Days, and Bill Nunn and Sam Jackson, they were also all in School Days, and Samuel like when they you hear people promoting like like trauma samuel jackson got his start in trauma uh which you know isn't accurate but he did he isn't a trauma movie <laughs> yeah. but what an auspicious start it is to say death by temptation because he is excellent in this movie he's really good when i was at trauma dance um a while ago but uh I was dressed up as a toxic Avenger doing the trauma parades down main street. And uh, I saw Samuel Jackson up on a balcony. Um, he was there promoting black snake moan. And uh, I, I yelled out, I was like, death by temptation. And he, he looked down, he, he definitely acknowledged and he laughed. And I'm sure he was like, that's a movie I was in a long time ago with those guys, <laughs> but it's like, ha. Yeah. I know like there was an interview with him, a few years ago where someone asked him about death by temptation and he smiled and you know, he said, he's happy that trauma has it. and was happy to hear they were still in business too. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I actually, uh, when we were watching this, I, I tweeted at Kadeem Hardison about how he still comes off as the coolest watching it. And he liked my tweet. So <laughs> that's, that's my riveting ad to that. Um, <laughs> and I would definitely recommend, um, if you're gonna pick up a physical copy of it, uh, that vinegar syndrome, it looks great. Um, there's a a fun interview um, with uh, Ernest Dickerson that I'm going to play clips throughout the episode with, but um, it's a really just fascinating interview with him and Lloyd. 
on there and i mean it just looks really good and there's there's even a there's an interview with james bond the third uh which was taken over the telephone so it's like kind of kind of a rough listen but the stuff he says is interesting it's mm-hmm. just i i can't play any clips from it on the show because the audio quality is pretty rough on that but it is something worth listening to yeah and i will say in lieu of if you can't find that because i know vinegar syndrome does like the limited number of the releases there's a chance that as you're hearing this maybe at a time when they're sold out of it as a backup the number two you should get was the original 1998 trauma dvd release of it and in a very distant third if you're doing a, a disc of it um the trauma retro release of it that came out in 2009 and the reason i say that is because someone at trauma made a mistake believe it or not and for the feature they use the master of the edited for television standards and broadcasting version so it cuts out a significant amount of the violence and the fun wholesome cussing that makes the movie so special you know i don't own that one so i'm gonna have to go and track that version down for my collection just to to have have the edited version as well i was gonna about to say no you don't have to but then i remembered i'm someone who deliberately went out of his way to get the r-rated version of trauma's war so that would be entirely hypocritical for me to dissuade you from your (laughs) completionist efforts yes (laughs) thank you you get it (laughs) i'm also going to save any potential trauma fans here who are trying to do the same thing some time uh the editor for television standards VHS release of Tromeo and Juliet does not exist. It appears in the trailer for it on the the home video versions. Like they mention it like in the trailer, but there's no evidence to suggest that was ever produced, mass produced for um, commercial consumption. And then I will say that the R-rated version of Terraformer is not on the DVD. (laughs) Yeah. But it is on VHS, so... (laughs) You can always get that. Yeah, your best for that is like, look for a Terraformer VHS. It looks like it was at one point in the Hollywood video because then you know for sure it's the the R-rated version. That's where mine came from. It is (laughs) funny. They like, they went out and filmed little skits and stuff uh, for all the gore and nudity that got cut out. But uh, back to to Death Pie Temptation. So um, I guess the original title of the movie was Temptation and uh, James Bond III said that when they were working on the soundtrack they wrote death by temptation on the label and he saw that and was like oh that's actually a better title than just temptation so he went with that but the movie was shot under the title temptation and then they they filmed part of this movie in Lawrence Fishburne's house Mm-hmm. You know, and I saw that and I'd always seen for years in the credits that it would say, uh, you know, the Fishburn or House of Red about like, like the, the Fishburns of State of the Fishburns. And I always thought it would be just kind of joking, like, oh, yeah, it's got to be Lawrence Fishburn's house. And it turns out it actually was. <laughs> it, it It's kind of kind of a bummer. Like, it would have been fun just to see like Lawrence Fishburn, like in one of the bar scenes, like in the background or something. But mm-hmm. it's pretty cool that they, they let him use use his house and it seemed like this filmmaking crew you know with Ernest Dickinson the cast was all very incestuous with all the Spike Lee films that were also happening in New York at the same time like they all it all seemed like they all worked on each other's projects which is pretty yeah. cool and funny connection to it 
Um, so both Spike Lee and uh, Ernest Dickerson and myself are all NY unicorns. And my first year at NYU, my freshman year was 0405, so predating YouTube. And so the New York, the Bopes Library, the famous NYU library, and the trauma in me is going to point out, this is the year that NYU had their single largest student suicide rate. But um, the Bopes Library has everyone's student films they'd ever made. So you can go in there and just watch like Spike Lee student films. And one of those is a rejected video that he made um, shot with Ernest Dickerson for um, Sugar Hill Records for Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five's White Lines that starred Lara Fishburne. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's pretty rad. <laughs> yeah, we have this Grandmaster Flash video starring Lawrence Fishburne shot by Ernest Dickerson directed by Spike Lee. Not good enough. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're going to have to pass on that. You know, we're, gonna, we're, we're only tackling projects like at the Ice Arcade at this moment from Sugar Hill. Thank you, sir. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. When this movie came out um, in Sweden, they were promoting it as the sequel to Vampire in Brooklyn, uh, which is kind oh, of funny. That's an important thing to point out, too. Yeah, um, because this hit. After the Shapiro Glickenhaus thing, Troma didn't officially release it on Troma Team Video until 1997. And so I think part of that is riding the wave that Vampire in Brooklyn had in 1996, one year prior. And it's funny, too, because um, Kadeem Hardison is also in Vampire in Brooklyn. So <laughs> I can see how that how that would uh, happen. <laughs> yeah. And then um, it According to two different interviews I've heard, um, it was either shot in Bed-Stuy Fort, or Fort Greene in Brooklyn. So um, that's go go wander around and try to find the locations and send me pictures of the houses. Yeah. And I'm like 90% sure it's Fort Greene. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. like, wait a minute. The, is it, uh, yeah, I think it was um, James Bond said Bed-Stuy and Ernest Dickerson said Fort Greene and I'm a little more inclined to believe Ernest Dickerson. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I could be wrong. Like that's why I put that 10% margin of error in there, but very much more Fort Greene. Of course, this was 14 years before I moved to New York and, and who knows how it's changed now. But yeah, that looks a lot more like Fort Greene than Bed-Stuy. And we should mention, you know, Ernest Dickerson, he like, you know, was was a DP, but this was like right kind of as his career was kicking off. But I, I have an audio clip I'm going to play of Ernest talking about um, how he got hooked up with James Bond III for this movie and why he did it. I met James Bond III, who was the writer-director of it. I met him when we were doing uh, School Days for Spike Lee. James Bond was one of the actors. And, uh, you know, we, you know, we're always talking, you know, after a day of shooting, you're always going into the, to the bar and sitting down at the bar and talking. And he's, and he just kind of mentioned that he had this film that he wanted to do. It was a horror film. Uh, he didn't have a script. He had a, a general idea of what the movie was going to be. And he wanted me to shoot it. And I said, yeah, fine. Sure. You know, you know, usually in conversations like that, you don't think it's actually going to happen. But, um... Think about a year later, James called me up and said that he had this, that he had the money to do this, that he had made a deal with a, a record company. Um, I think it was Hush. I think it was Hush Records, I think. Yep. Uh, that was owned by the husband of Melba Moore. Uh, the, they were married at that time. 
and um, he had a script, and I came on board, and um, that's how it happened. That's how it started. Well, I did Death by Temptation because I I love horror films. I love good horror films. Uh, I was looking for something in the fantastic genre to do, and uh, this story came along. James didn't have a... An, there was a lot of things he had no idea of, of, of what he wanted to do with the story, so... Um, and the visuals. Uh, so he basically um, agreed that he would handle the actors and I would handle everything else. It can't be stressed enough how vitally important uh, Ernest Dickinson is to this movie. It So much of the vibe, just the look of it, so much of it just pulls you in. And I'm not saying that to downplay anyone else's work. Like It's superbly written, it's superbly acted, but just... You know, from the first time you watch Death by Temptation, there's so many images that are not going to leave your mind. And especially now looking at a Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray release of it, and now those things are so much heightened, so everything that you thought was great, seeing it, you know, on BET late one night or getting a VHS tape in, you know, extended play versus now and seeing it so vividly. It is so phenomenal. So they- they talk about how low budget it is, but it does not look it like it looks very lush and like they had money to make this movie. Yeah, I think it goes to there's, there's only like three locations total in the whole thing. And I think it just shows like if you're making an independent film, put all your money into making like three things look really good. And then that'll be the, the bulk of it. And you'll have something that just looks amazing. So I um, I one thing I like to do is I like to see what other trauma connections there are with uh, the people who are in the cast and crew of this. So I have a list here. So Kadeem Hardison, who's the star, um, he is the narrator in BC Butcher uh, that just came out from trauma. Um, the costume designer, John Michael Reefer, he did costumes in Class of Newcomb High Kabuki Man. He did locations. Um the Jack Cooley, who did sound, he did uh, sound for Cry Uncle, Love Thrill Murders, The Children, Zombie Island Massacre, and not trauma movies, but trauma important. He also did sound for Joe and Silent Night, Bloody Night. Uh, Lloyd worked on both of those films. Um, and then there was a there's a whole crew of people who um, worked on Kabuki Man because it should be said in the trauma history of things. Um, Kabuki Man was shot before Death by Temptation, so there was uh, definite um, some crew stealing for pickup shots and stuff, which we'll get into a little bit later. Um, another sound um, artist, Charles Hunt, did sound for Beware Children at Play. Um, the first camera AC, Jonathan Burkhart, uh, he is a camera op for Troma's War. Uh, one of the gaffers, Tony Estern, was a gaffer on Blades. Uh, Stefan Harshman, who's the editor, he was in the Toxic Avenger 2 art department. Um, and the music editor, he did sound for Toxie 2 and he scored Fortress of America. So, some pretty, pretty all over the place trauma connections is kind of neat. Yeah, I think it speaks to the strength of what the East Coast indie world looked like at that point. Yeah, it's like the perfect time, like when we get into 
our double features, like, um, you know, you could see the people who were paying their dues then were doing it more with, you know, the Corman school of things, but the people who were paying their dues from death by temptation definitely got their start at trauma. So, which is pretty neat. Let's uh, dig into the plot of death by temptation. What would you call like the main uh, woman in the movie? It's promoted as a vampire movie. Sometimes, sometimes it's a demon or succubus promoted movie. What, what was your take? I call it a succubus. Okay. I think it's easier to sell a movie as a vampire movie than a succubus movie, just because vampires are more known than uh, succubi. And I wonder how much of it comes from that one famous production still of uh, the succubus character with the fangs at the top and bottom of her mouth. Yeah. And people just run with. And I think because so much of the movie deals with spirituality vampires are the most commonly associated horror villain with spirituality so it's an easy sort of connection to make to say vampire so yeah so and we have uh and she she doesn't have a name they uh, they call her later on in the film they call her temptation but um, she doesn't really have a name, but she you can recognize her in every scene because she has these long gold fingernails and, you know, just looking very glamorous whenever she's hanging out in this dive bar where a good chunk of the movie takes place. And uh, the cast of characters at the dive bar is pretty fun. Um, you see uh, Bill Nunn, who was in like Do the Right Thing. Um, he plays a character named Dougie. And he's just at the bar, you know, flirting and hitting on women and missing every single time. At the, the first bar. time I saw Spider-Man in theaters and saw Bill Nunn in it, I saw him and I went, Dougie! <laughs> That's awesome. And then and you have the Kadeem Hardison who plays Kay, who uh, he fucking steals this movie. Like, when, when you uh, see a trauma movie, you kind of have an idea generally of how the performances are going to be in there. And you don't really expect, you know, like a, uh, a class performance in a trauma film, typically. And he is really good and really funny. Like, he just seems like somebody you'd kind of want to hang out with. Definitely. Like, and just as the perfect contrast to, uh, James Bond III's main character, Joel, who's very square, very, you know, religious, but heart's in the right place. Yeah. And New York and having a well-meaning tour guide. Like, yeah, Kadeem is so perfect in this. And I guess, um, I guess uh, James Bond III, who plays Joel, he wrote that part for himself. He didn't have anybody else in mind for that. So I wonder, just listening to some of his interview on the vinegar syndrome thing, like how autobiographical that character is to, to, to his feelings um, anyways, um, it's kind of interesting to, to think about because he seems like a very spiritual religious person, especially when watching this movie. The party was born to play him. Right. <laughs> this movie has some uh, pretty fun lines. So like right at the beginning, uh, we see this bartender, you know, talking about um, 
trying to go get abortions and then cheating on somebody, you know, having somebody cheat on their spouse. And then he picks up the, the succubus woman and uh, he brings her home. He's like, you hot natured freakazoid who can't wait to jump my bones because you know I got the key to your pleasures. <laughs> and it's like, oh, man. My, my, my favorite part of that quote is the first part of that where he says, you know, I can tell a lot about a woman by their bed. And this freaky <laughs> bed belongs to a hot natured freakazoid. <laughs> and and, the, so and it's like got like you know like lace and candles all over the place and and uh she has her mirror covered so that should be uh the the first clue that something's up mm-hmm. and uh she lures him into the shower with a belt around his neck and uh they're they're uh in the in the throes of making whoopee in the shower and blood just starts pouring out of the the spigot in there another reason i think it's fort green right <laughs> pretty typical for the neighborhood mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and then he uh he runs runs around the house naked flopping all over the place and you hear screams and growls and blood pours out from under the door mm-hmm. and uh we are then introduced to the preacher sam jackson mm-hmm. and i i was just thinking like watching sam jackson's performance how funny it would be if you know he did did his uh infamous pulp fiction line in this movie as well because i could i could see quentin tarantino having lifted something from from this <laughs> i uh it's, it goes without saying quentin tarantino has definitely seen this motion picture yeah sam sam jackson is given a given a impassioned sermon and you see a spooky black lady um wearing like it's like a funeral garb basically with a black veil over her face um and thunder and lightning you could tell that she's up to no good because all this thunder lightnings in the church and and it cuts to sam jackson and his uh his wife and child driving off and he goes to hit her but it doesn't work out. He ends up crashing and he gets covered in blood and his son survives. Who's to be raised by his grandma. This is Joel, our hero. And he's growing up to be a minister, but needs a break to go hang out with his cousin Kay in New York. It's uh, it's, and it only gets better from there folks. I'm, I'm guessing if you're listening to this podcast right now, you've seen this, but if you haven't, absolutely see death by temptation like yes. it's such a phenomenal film it is so good so i had a i had a question for you um so i know listening to james bond's thing how his interview how she represents temptation but i got another read from her character in the film so the succubus she um, only kills people that she has had sex with. And one of the people that she kills in the film, he uh, he gets all sorts of cuts and bruises and sores on him. And then uh, she says that she gave him something that will grow and grow until it consumes him. And thinking about the time when this movie was made, um, it made me wonder if she was supposed to be a representation of like the AIDS pandemic that was rampant, especially in the African-American community at that time. 
I think that scene is that, like, that's definitely a nod to uh, AIDS in the black community. But I think in the grander scope of things, the writing of the temptation character seems to be a metaphor for spirituality, the more judgmental side of spirituality, especially within the black community. Because if you look at who she brutally murders, the first one she murders is, uh, you know, or she murders someone who is, you know, stand, stepping out on their wife. She's murdering someone who is, you know, openly advocating. We've heard moments ago for someone to get an abortion. Uh, she murders someone who earlier we've seen the film is a homosexual. These are all things that the more uh, exclusivatory part of uh, black spirituality and spirituality in general um, any sort of religious circles that get into that sort of exclusatory bent uh, make as the target for all the things wrong. And with so much of the film being good versus evil, while she is this evil succubi character, effectively her hit list is the same list of people who would be determined undesirable by someone who would normally be in a religious perspective of uh, evangelical minister that our lead character is. And, and she has a pretty rough time, you know, trying to seduce him later on in the film. Like she seduces Kay um, earlier before she meets Joel. Um, and he, you know, has a sexy dream with, you know, super sexy saxophones. And <laughs> she's feeding him grapes and bananas. Which, which is, let's just say, the sexiest instrument, the sexiest fruits. Like, you know, <laughs> this, this movie just oozes sensuality. Yes. <laughs> Remember when people named those particular fruits and instruments the sexiest fruits and instruments of 1990? Like, it was just so on point. It was the cover of People magazine, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and the cover of uh, Instruments magazine. And yeah. fruits magazine. There's this uh, scene that I loved in, in there, because Joel is such a square, um, and Kay is just trying to get him to loosen up, so he's trying to convince him to go to, to the bar, and they have a wacky outfit changing montage like the the glamming up the ugly girl montage in this movie <laughs> so good and then at uh, the very last part of it too when he finally like looks nice and then uh you have like him and Kay do the the pound slap and still it's just barely like works in terms of the communication thing and you can tell joel is trying so hard um <laughs> what i like about it compared to like a lot of similar scenes in movies is you usually just get a montage where it's all just body language of saying no, 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 yes. Whereas with this, you have, that's why when I reached out, I, I was curious how much of that, the dialogue in that was improv because Kadeem is very funny and very like naturally cool. But also what I think stands out is him saying, you know, in addition, like when he's riffing on him saying like, you know, this almost works, uh, this could work, maybe this, not that. And I think that just makes it a bit different than just a bad, bad, bad. Oh, finally, something good that we normally see diverting from that cliche. And even like the good one, he's like, it'll do. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. But uh, one more thing about that scene, yeah. too. What I think works about it is he's letting him all use clothes from his own closet. But the fact they're saying that he's an actor. So he would have all these clothes that he doesn't necessarily like that are from other eras. So it's just such a really thoughtful, logical way that you know, it makes sense that he would, why he would have clothes he himself doesn't like that looks even worse on this L7 weenie square church boy who would be drawn to these particular conservative clothes. Like, it just, it's just such a thoughtful movie where everything makes sense. So I thought and, that was like a really cool, subtle, well-played way they did that. 
yeah even even like towards the end of the movie um they set it up early on he's like yeah i'm an actor i keep some of the props for my movie like this uzi and i keep the knives over here because you never know i live in the hood <laughs> so joel meets uh meets the succubus and and Kay, Kay gets a little upset because he was flirting with her earlier but uh you know he he wants joel to you know get out and experience life so he doesn't really say anything until you know he calls he calls her on it uh a little later he goes up to Dougie who's hanging out in the bar and it turns out Dougie's not just there flirting with women he basically runs the X-Files before the mm-hmm. X-Files was a thing <laughs> which that was like a when I first saw that I that was not a plot twist I was expecting <laughs> but uh it's so it's so good and it's so believable and I think what also um shows the strength of Kadeem Hardison as an actor and his character work is Kadeem Hardison's reaction to, man, I can't believe what I'm seeing, is at that point, he's the avatar for the audience watching it. So the fact that he's in disbelief about it makes it easier for us to accept our own disbelief instead of it being a movie-ruining plot twist. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so so uh, D- Dougie and Kay, they go and see a psychic, and she uh, gives them the lowdown that she's a demon uh, named Temptation. And, uh, and the succubus, she possesses Madame Sonia and uh, threatens, threatens everybody. So Dougie and Kay, they, they're like, we have to, we have to kill her. What'd you think about their, their plan to, uh, to take her out? Well, you, you skipped over when they talked to the fortune teller to, you know, uh, and which is a, the cameo from probably at that point in the film's release, the biggest star of the movie, a uh, singer Melba Moore. There's a few um, pretty big cameos from the time, like Freddie Jackson mm-hmm. is in the film as well, which it's, you know, pretty impressive that they got some of these cameos, you know, back, back when uh, I don't imagine it was as easy as like these days to, to get somebody to show up in your stuff. I believe, if I recall correctly, because a lot of this movie was, um, he, James Bond III got a substantial chunk of the money for the making of this from Orpheus Records, who also held or released the soundtrack. And I know um, it was Hush Management, who a lot of the artists on the soundtrack were being managed by. And... I want to say at the time, Melba Moore's husband was either. He ran, he ran Hush. He ran Hush? Okay. Yeah. I couldn't remember if he ran Hush or, or Orpheus. It sounds, I'm, I'm, I'm deferring to you. I'm, you're probably right. He, he ran Hush. And so that might've been because it had uh, one of her songs in the soundtrack that um, she would then just, I could see someone like that, you know, appearing in that as a favor, added a little credit to it. And also, um, with how a lot of like black movies on cable would be distributed at that point, having her name in it would pretty much ensure it would wind up being played on BET and why it continued to have like a, a life in like um, uh, Stars in Black and um, other black premium cable channels for years to come. It's it, which is pretty funny to think about how the movie's marketed now, where Samuel Jackson is like big on the cover, but he maybe has five minutes at the most of screen time. <laughs> well, what a five minutes, you know? I, I mean, mean hey, you know, 
it's not like uh, Kevin Costner and Sizzle Beach USA. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think it's more akin to um, uh, Anthony Hopkins and Silence of the Lambs. Like that's only a 14 minute difference between their con- contributions to either film. But they dry you in their scenes every single time. No, oh, definitely. Kay and, and uh, Dougie, they go to try to kill the succubus by by slipping some holy water into her drink which was a pretty uh i don't know like it was a jarring scene to watch in 2021 to see a bartender uh put something in a woman's drink (laughs) on one hand yes on the other it's technically a succubus that's true (laughs) so you know and as in like if anyone's listening this we're, we're not not a metaphorical succubus. She's a literal succubus in the film. Like she's murderer. And some of those murders, you could be of the thought where it's one of those, um, there's a subgenre of horror film that has a fandom that I completely support called good for her horror films where women <laughs> kill men who absolutely deserve it. Things like ranging from I spit on your grave to midsummer. Yes. And so <laughs> I could concede religious overtones potentially aside. No, oh, maybe, maybe even like as part of it, I could see death by temptation falling into the, that good for her genre. If you're, if you're judging the, um, the men she takes in as being, you know, if you think if the death penalty is something warranting uh, probably two of the three murders we see. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so, and plus it's like, you know, putting holy water, in it is like you know it's but yeah he mentions it's freshly blessed holy water too which i i love the idea that it's not like he hasn't sitting down for a few days so you know some of the blessing may have worn off or uh the blessing didn't quite take to it so he had to baptize your child twice because the first baptism just didn't take so we just find out that holy water is not shelf stable really (laughs) yeah yeah just the quality level holy water so um, it's it's like a epi pin like it's starting to get a little funky (laughs) yeah but when the holy water changes colors when you need to like refill you're thinking holy water and i I wish there would have been a scene where he's like uh he pulls up on like some priest like hey father sorry to bother you can you just bless this for me really quick okay my (laughs) son why do you it's best you don't know just bless this water for me please thank you fbi um so yeah uh but yeah no i I agree like you know the fact that a bartender can be paid off to uh just put something in a woman's drink like uh, like he doesn't doesn't know it's a succubus so (laughs) yeah he doesn't know the backstory of it it's like can you go put this in her drink and and then uh to quote dougie it's like she'll be slobbering farting and gagging and shit (laughs) which is a one of the clips they use in the trailer and yeah as much as i love that movie that scene and the trailer is amazing too i don't get why that particular clip was used in the trailer like that show there's a light-hearted side to it too maybe but yeah i i mean i guess i could kind of see it because the the movie is a lot funnier than than you would expect expect it to be from the trailer that's true. Because uh, the trailer is fairly serious, except for, you know, one or two bits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can see that actually now that you mention it. She drinks this and then um, all the bottles start to explode in the bar. And then uh, they go to try to stab her, but she's too powerful. And she says they're going to fight the beasts. So they uh, they they go out to to go uh, to go to go get them. And uh, 
their car, Dougie and Kay's car is missing. So Dougie, he's like, I'm a cop and he hijacks a random car. <laughs> Another reason why I think it's Fort Creek. Yes. <laughs> and at this, at the same time, um, Joel, Joel is, uh, getting seduced by the succubus he's making out with her and she's trying to pressure him into drinking some wine but uh but he sticks to his guns and he does not he does not uh drink it so she stirs the wine with her finger and then uh takes a sip and spits it into his mouth and uh he passes out and then we cut to probably one of the most iconic parts of the of the film um, where Kay's looking for, you know, just weapons to, uh, to kill the succubus. And he, he's at his house and he enters a room and he sees himself on the TV and he, uh, he gets eaten by the television. And then regurgitated, the blood comes out and we see the knife. And then we see what's supposed to be his face, like trapped in the television, um, yeah, it's it's such an iconic part of the thing. And I love in the, the Lloyd interview with, with Ernest when Lloyd says, where did that idea come from? And he just basically says, that came right from Videodrome. Like, I'm actually going to play a little bit of that that interview. That designed the whole effect where Kadeem is is, uh, is sucked into the television. Yeah, and, you know, yeah that's that, amazing. That thing. It's a beautiful effect. Um, it's an amazing effect, too, especially in its day. Yeah. I mean, no, I've still never seen anything like that. We did it very, very simply, actually. Um, I had a, a shell of a television made and had, uh, instead of the screen, I had a piece of, um, of rubber, of white rubber. And then uh, with a 16 millimeter camera, I, I pre-shot some stuff of uh, Kadeem making funny gestures at the, at the camera. And then later on, we we put it in a uh, projector and actually front projected it right onto the uh, right onto the, uh, the the rubber, so it looked like it was uh, the television screen. And then we had somebody behind the screen pushing it out, you know, making it look like it's it's alive, you know. Joel Joel then wakes up next to the naked succubus, and Sam Jackson appears and he starts yelling at him, calling him a fornicator and a sinner. And, and and it and happens when he wakes up. It seems like he's in his childhood room. Yes, before he goes to New York, he's in. Uh, was it uh, South North Carolina? I believe. Yep, North Carolina, where they take their shirts off, twist them around their hands, spin like a helicopter. Yes, <laughs> and then uh, and so he's he's back in uh, North Carolina because we see his grandma, um, you know, also there with with Sam Jackson, and then. The succubus does like a force push, like a Jedi force push and knocks over grandma. The succubus breaks Joel's wrists and it looks pretty rough. Like she like just snaps his hand back and it's gross. (laughs) And uh, she tries to strangle grandma and uh, Joel goes for his Bible and cross as Sam Jackson's preaching. And then you just have uh, a a light of the cross on the succubus. And then her head turns into a creature from Sergeant Kabuki Man NYPD and explodes. So- I got a little with recycling because, yeah, because Kabuki Man was shot the year before this, but it was released the year after. But then, like, it took six years for both to release a Trauma Team video release. So I actually, um, and kind of some interesting. Uh, stuff about this is um 
so Ernest Dickerson shot probably like 99% of this movie and the 1% he didn't shoot Lloyd shot, which would explain where the Kabuki man uh, head came from. I actually have an audio clip I'm going to play with um, Lloyd and Ernest Dickerson talking about um, the pickup shots that Lloyd did. I went on to another job. And then next thing I yeah, it was, it was a hiatus. It's, it's, it's closed down. I think it did close down. And then there were some pickup shots of a beast that came in later. I didn't shoot those. Who was the cinematographer on the uh, beast and the climatic explosion that had to match Ernest Dickerson's artistry? Who was the DP in then? I don't know. Another interesting point for me personally is that Ernest Dickerson, the director of photography, had to leave Death by Temptation because he was becoming a major cinematographer and director of photography and ultimately a, an award-winning director. So I became the uh, director of photography for the very last uh, uh, climactic scene with our friend down here. And um, my miserable director of photography abilities rose to the occasion because nobody has ever noticed that there is a uh, difference between the Ernest Dickerson brilliant work in Death by Temptation and uh, my rather traumatic work. Uh, one of uh, the most uh, uh, stressful, although I've been one of the most stressful events of my life, we had very little money and we had to finish your movie. Mm -hmm. We had to mix it and get reshoot, you know, we had to reshoot some stuff and James wanted interstitial stuff and so I had to be the DP on that uh, the, uh, that big scene at the end with the that okay. we made that monster thing and uh, that was you okay. and I was I was like really paranoid that uh, you'd look at the movie and then you'd say whoa this is terrible I'm gonna sue those bastards <laughs> that cheap Kaufman he, but uh, hopefully uh, it was okay then yeah it cuts in it cuts in so it didn't you know we tried to you know we we like deconstructed as best we could your lighting mm -hmm. and um, you know tried to imitate it as much as we could but again I I'm not a I do my own you know, camera work, but I'm definitely not a master. I'm no Stanley Cortez or Ernest Dickerson. That is for sure. So uh, I, I was really worried. I mean, I, I don't worry about too many things, but I, I was worried about fucking with somebody's art, you know, and, uh, and uh, I, uh, you know, when nothing happened, I was like, whew. <laughs> well, I think, well, if I remember correctly, I think it's a, it's a tight close-up of the beast, right? Well, there was other stuff uh, in there too, yeah. but we tried to keep it as close as we possibly, you know, we tried to keep it as as uh, as as un, uh, you know, un, to have the least number of errors as possible. I think he also wrote a bit about it in his book as well, um, and his own nerves about how he where was where he's going to ruin the film. Which it's, I don't think if I didn't know. Mm -hmm. um he like you can't tell that somebody else shot like the last little bits like it looks just as good which i think that's something that people do forget about lloyd is that he is a filmmaker mm -hmm. <laughs> so and i think he even forgets that about himself too like he's a he's a really good filmmaker when he gets the chance to be so mm -hmm. the kabuki man monster explodes there's green slime and smoke everywhere and then uh and then Joel hugs his Grammy, and then we see a, a limo pull up outside that New York bar, and uh, Kay is now a vampire, or a succubus, or demon, Wolfman, <laughs> mummy. Uh, no, uh, well, yeah, it's it's it I'd say demon because he has the two rows of fangs. So That's true. Yeah, and uh, 
And Dougie is also a demon <laughs> in the the end of Death by Temptation. <laughs> that, uh, movie, that movie is it's so good. Like it's I I I wanna watch it again after we're done recording. I do too. Like, and that's one too where I mentioned when I would copy movie troll movies like on VHS for friends, like Death by Temptation was the one most people would ask for and probably um that and cannibal were the two things that potentially got more people into trauma in my high school than otherwise would have probably wanted to check for it and i remember like the day like my very last day of eighth grade going to uh cheapo records in fridley minnesota and finding a used copy of the death by temptation soundtrack on cd from orpheus records boom baby i got the soundtrack um there was a record store out here called atomic records and James, so James Bond, I live in Denver and James Bond, the third, he lives in Colorado Springs, which is like an hour away. So they, when I went to Atomic Records, they had this box of death by temptation, which I imagine was probably him cleaning out his garage and being like, I don't need a whole case of death by temptation cds so he probably sold it to him and they had a they had a bunch of them for a dollar and i kicked myself for only buying one it's like i should have just bought all of them because it would have opened a theme restaurant like for that many copies of it like (laughs) they you have like the everything's terrible jerry Maguire things i could have had the death by temptation soundtracks (laughs) (laughs) but so you said on a mission was your favorite track on there that yep. yeah it's I such think, I, mean, I think like for whatever reason the mixing on the cd it, it sounds better on the it's a little weirdly low like volume wise some of the mixing on that track on the cds as opposed to like when you hear it in the film itself and yeah so i don't know what happened between uh the the soundtrack release and the film release but yeah that's my favorite song on it i one of my favorites is uh, sex in the single man on there it's but i'm glad you brought up the soundtrack because it is a really good soundtrack and it i see it pop up on uh, ebay all the time so it's Mm -hmm. something that you should that everyone should pick up and add to their to their trauma soundtrack collection because i mean let's say like up to the year 2000 you only like on cd you only had like five like not including compilations and like the talking of Tromaville, but there were only like five movies that had like trauma cd soundtracks right you had um death by temptation stendhal syndrome decapitated terra firmer and tromeo and juliet and then you had citizen toxie in 2002 but i'm trying to add was there another cd release that there not that trauma put out but there was um the cannibal the musical that the crap site put out and they also put out um which i can't find like any evidence of anywhere but i know it exists because it was stolen out of my friend's car was uh cannibal the musical um it was like two tracks but it had like shatterproof Mm -hmm. and uh and i think something else like like a demo version of like when i was on top of you or something or no because there was there was another song that was cut from cannibal that i think was the track two on that the um we're all gonna die song or something like that or yeah it was yeah yeah, just like a two track thing and now 
now the Cannibal the Musical CDs like goes for like three hundred bucks on like Discogs, and it's like I'm never gonna get that again. <laughs> so, well, I, uh, it's also you know the the Discogs have and have nots prices. Um, yeah, I because I remember like the the crap t- crap dot TV site that Jason McHugh had it had it for um it was like those two tracks, but they wanted like twenty five or thirty five dollars for two tracks, which in 2000 money equates to about $300 today. So that sounds about right. But yeah, well, any final thoughts on Death by Temptation? It's just a phenomenal film. I know we're gushing on it a lot, but it's just such a wonderful movie. And there's a reason why it's held up for as long as it has and the themes that it touches on. And there's so much that touches on that are still relevant today. And, you know, I wrote my uh, NYU Cinema Studies thesis on Black horror films and the entire history of the Black horror genre. And Death by Temptation in particular came out at a time when there really was something of a drought of Black horror films. And there's so much that it just touches on and captures of that era. And I think now, because we're going to transition now to talking about we double feature it with. Um, so in that same vein, like the, the only other movie it really gets compared to is Vampire in Brooklyn, which, you know, and it's, in some like hip hop circles, if you want to start a debate, say what's better, Death by Temptation or Vampire in Brooklyn, because you'll get strong feelings on both sides of it. And I think it definitely uh, helped. It shows that there is an audience who cares about this film and these themes and this particular style. And it's just, it's wonderful this film exists and that it especially, it's wonderful that Vinegar Syndrome put out such a, worthwhile proper release of it so yeah it's a good movie i love it yeah and everyone it's uh like at the time of recording it's on trauma now it's also on shutter so you know there's no excuse you should you should definitely track it down and watch it it's it's definitely worth your time all right so it's double feature night at your theater what movie are you picking when it came time to choose what I wanted for my double feature initially I wanted to do because like I said this movie is compared so often with vampire in Brooklyn and no disrespect to vampire in Brooklyn but for how thoughtful this podcast is I didn't want to just rehash and like revisit the discourse of vampire in Brooklyn versus death by temptation that always seems to echo around the uh, either film and so initially I wanted to do um a movie which was part of the early 2000s, like 99, 2000, 2001 rush of direct-to-video black horror films. But that movie itself, I'm not going to mention the name of it because uh, who knows, you may do it on a future episode. While it does have certain elements of it that are interesting and worthwhile, it's nothing I can say is like legitimately as great of a film as Death by Temptation. So I wanted to do another black horror film that I think is just a phenomenal masterwork. So I went with the 1976 film, JD's Revenge. You go and guy with a good looking woman, but something awful's gonna happen. There's big trouble coming. It's JD's Revenge. Listen man, ain't nothing wrong with my soul. There was a real mean killing and the wrong guy died. They buried his body, but his soul survived for J.D.'s revenge. Lately, I've been getting these headaches, you know? I've never felt this lost before in my life. You beat me up. 
Ike, you, uh... I don't remember doing any of those things. Maybe something is happening to me. The reincarnation of a killer who came back from the dead to possess a man's soul, make love to his woman, and get the vengeance he craved. I'm flipping out. He's my baby sister, Betty Joe. You're my baby sister, Betty Joe. They are my enemies. They're my enemies. There's one weird nigger. I mean, I'm cracking up, man. I blacked out. Glenn Terman, the star of Cooley High. What in the world have you done to yourself? I ain't seen a get-up like that in 25 years. <laughs> yeah. Joan Pringle. Well, my business is where? Theotis. Lou Gossett. There is no danger, Theotis. This nigga's crazy. I'm the craziest nigga you ever gonna meet. <laughs> yeah! He wasn't himself. Don't nobody talk to me like that! He turned into this, into this monster, a whole other person. Scared of your dad. There is something wrong with Ike. Tonight he kept saying he was this J.D. Walker. J.D. Walker's been dead for over 30 years. He's J.D. Walker. What the hell do you mean J.D. Walker is back? This boy is possessed by the spirit of J.D. Walker. So you're a jack-legged preacher now, huh, Elijah? <laughs> J.D.'s voice. Hey, that good for nothing, brother, y'all. And his manner? I got skull to settle with him. You were possessed. Notice killed Betty Joe. <laughs> Forty years later, on someone else's face, you can see J.D. Walker's hatred. Time just won't erase J.D.'s revenge. I'll have my revenge. Nice. Yeah. J.D.'s revenge of the film I first saw at NYU in a class with uh, recently retired fabulous professor Ed Guerrero. No relation. And we screened this and it blew me away. Um, there's people, people think of like the, a lot of the, the black exploitation horror classics, they think, you know, things run typically on a scale from Blackula, which is fantastic to Blackenstein, which is a great idea with not the best execution. And JD's revenge is really in a class all of its own. You have, uh, underworld crime Lord in 1940s, New Orleans, who, is murdered and his soul comes back in the 1970s inhabiting the body of a mild-mannered uh, law student cab driver um, when he's hypnotized in a New Orleans lounge act. And so you have a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde element to it, um, not to be confused with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Black, where a white guy turns black or a black guy turns white. Uh, this is... Um, very much where you see and what's unique about this film too is you don't see a lot of uh, black horror black exploitation films that show that sort of nostalgia or tribute or tying back to the uh, 1940s era and when you have that directly contrasting with um, when you see 1940s style versus 1970s style it's just such a cool mashup in that regard and the reason why I think it plays so well as a double feature with death by temptation is they both deal so heavily with religious themes and black spirituality because the person who jd wants his revenge with in possessing this person is someone who was at one point uh underworld kingpin who's since become the manager of someone who's a, a radio evangelist for profit and you know, there's a lot of really interesting, compelling turns that speak to the spiritual 
side of it without at any point being corny or contrived or heavy handed. And it's going to follow a very believable route. And you also have just fantastic performances by Lou Gossett Jr. and Glenn Turman. Who um, he's also in uh, a different, different worlds with Kadeem Hardison. Yep. Boom. The connection there. And, uh, and it was directed by uh, Arthur Marks, who trauma fans will know for doing a uh, underrated but phenomenal trauma film, Centerfold Girls in 74, which he did in the middle of doing a run of black exploitation films like uh, Detroit 9000 and Bucktown. So yeah, I highly, highly recommend everyone check out JD's Revenge. The, and the couple of trauma references I did, our connections I did find. So uh, Bob Miner, who plays the husband, he uh, does stunts for Maniac Cop 2, uh, which is now a trauma movie. And that still feels weird to say. <laughs> but um, other uh, trauma connections I found, um, I guess on like the, the weird uh, dub stuff. So George Folsey Jr., he edited uh, JD's Revenge, but he's also the editor and producer of Schlock, a.k.a. The Banana Monster that trauma put out and then i think got yeah. in trouble for putting out because <laughs> yeah, he he's a frequent collaborator of uh landis right yes yeah um they did like blues brothers together and um all that stuff and then uh ronda Shear, she played the 1942 girl and she's in assault of the party nerds part two she does an interview on the make your own damn movie box set. And she just introduced so many people to trauma movies on USA up all night. You kind of have to mention her when she's around in a, a trauma conversation. Wait, hold up. Assault of the party nerds. Part two. Part two was a trauma movie. Yeah. I actually have a promotional condom uh, for that. Well, cause the, the first one wasn't like the first one was, not full moon, but like the proto full moon. Or was the first one a trauma? I'm not sure about Cause, that. Cause I know because the, the nerd movies trauma put out were Killer Nerd, Bride of Killer Nerd, Nerds of a Feather. Um, and this one's not even mentioned in Lloyd's book. The only reason I do know is I just acquired um, like, yeah, a trauma condom for Assault of the Party Nerds too. <laughs> so the first one, yeah, I want to say you're not, if not full moon, or what was that? The same company put out well, there's already in the slide ball bolorama. Um, because the, the actor Empire. from Galactic, what was it? Is Empire, I think, right? I think so, yeah, because yeah, because the, the same actor from Galactic Gigolo is in Assault of the Party Nerds, and there's so much you know between that, like the Assault of the Care, um, the Bimbo movie rush, like Assault of the Killer Bimbos, and all the ones that got like bits and pieces taken for Bimbo movie bash, that uh, proto mashup movie, um, which I wonder how that holds up now. Um, <laughs> that's the one that I think in aesthetically may play better now than it did at the time but who knows it could also be you know misogynistic toxic masculinity at its absolute worst so of which jd's revenge does a fantastic ahead of its time job critiquing and just in the same way that i think death by temptation does a really interesting analytical eye at the overtones of religion and uh, vengeance and the unnecessary exclusion that uh, the corruption of religion can issue. I think a lot of JD's revenge shows how uh, the corruption that can come from organized religion, as well as just in terms of society. And when you see just the uh, toxic masculinity um, shown in different parts from whether, and the distrust of mental health 
when you have someone actually looking to reach out about their own mental health problems and a lot of the um the medical industry people at the time are just you know not acknowledging it and i think for some of the critiques that the film has about mental health or excuse me about toxic masculinity but you know it's never portrayed in a positive light and you also hear like you know his best friend like gets into you know i wish i would listen i wish i could have helped him because he was asking for help this whole time um i think it's way ahead of the curve in terms of you know addressing a lot of these things that are so much more potent today yeah it's uh it's been a while since i've seen it but i i need to revisit it i know arrow put a blu-ray of it out not too long ago so that's the one i watched and it's awesome and even like the essay on the inside of it is really well done and one of the features on it is um the radio spots one of which is for a double feature with coffee my awesome beer film so yeah, that, mine too. I have a signed coffee poster like hanging up in my stairway. Like oh, I love awesome. that. <laughs> um, well, for for my double feature, I decided to go with the 1974 film directed by William Girdler, Abby. This was Abby. This was Abby. <laughs> a woman loved and in love until that night when something evil came looking for a soul to possess. I can't stop thinking about your husband. <laughs> that creep. Forget him. Was this Abby? Now the fun starts. Grab Hold her! Hear me, demon. Leave this woman's body! Rated R. So this movie is, I mean, for if you just want to do a two word synopsis of the movie, Black Exorcist mm -hmm. uh, could have been an alternate title of it because they definitely lift very heavily from uh, Exorcist. And this was um, the only Exorcist knockoff that actually had legal action taken towards it. So yeah. it, for a very, very long time, it was impossible to find in the United States. Like, I never saw a physical copy of this movie until I visited Toronto in 2015. And I saw it in a video store and I was taken aback. I yeah so like same here I've never seen a physical copy and and uh, I did a little bit of uh, of wandering around trying to figure out what movie I wanted to do a double I, at first I was thinking maybe Petey Wheat Straw um, came to mind at first but um, Abby just seemed like it felt right and I was looking for it and I found a physical copy on eBay but then it got stolen out of my mailbox so as far as I know oh dude no I know so and like I feel bad for the seller because it's not his fault <laughs> I didn't yeah. get it so I'm not going to give him a bad review or nothing so it's like well oh, man that sucks like man that's awful so I did watch I watched a version of you know of a movie with already dubious legal things. I watched a, a dubious version on YouTube um, and the quality on it was not great, but um, you know, it, it was, it was good enough to 
you know, enjoy just like a nice kind of uh, exploitation movie. And I, I love William Girdler's movies on my Frostbiter episode. I doubled Frostbiter with the movie he did, The Manitou. Um, and this is his, his take on The Exorcist. William Marshall, who's Blackula, he uh, is like the main priest. And it's about a, a priest and his wife. Uh, she becomes possessed when... Um, when Blackula releases a, a demon uh, from a statue in the Middle East. So it, it's very much just like The Exorcist. There's not too much uh, different other than it's, you know, a full grown woman uh, instead of a child. And uh, she, uh, she doesn't, um, she goes around having sex with other men um, and killing them for, um, before you know the main exorcism takes place so it's if you could track it down it's it's just a wonderfully made movie and uh any reason to go to canada the borders are open now just make make go on an abbey pilgrimage to toronto the happiest place on earth yes and and right there and and yeah you just need to have more william girdler movies in your life (laughs) get some some poutine and uh and you know and, and some girdling that exactly <laughs> and the the trauma connections i found on that one were um a whole bunch of the like the producer um was and like the composer and production designer they all were major players on the trauma movie project kill uh which stars leslie nelson so in a serious role yeah and so also one worth uh i think that one's on trauma now and it's on vhs i don't ever think it made the jump to dvd but yeah, no it, it's on vhs it was part of the before there were stars trauma collection that also included um there's the wedding uh, party yeah and, wedding party with robert de niro um mr scarface with jack palance uh sizzle beach usa with kevin costner um there, there's a uh, sissy spacek movie oh ellie but that, i don't think that was a part of that that was um no, no, I take that back. No, um, Ginger in the Morning. You're right. Yes. That was Ellie was, um, oh, what's her name? And that was a Troma Collector's Edition release. Because that actually came out in the 80s. Um, Shelly Winters. I, I have the Vestron video of Ellie. <laughs> I remember because um, uh, in the summer that I was like really into, the, the first summer rather, that I was like super into Troma and my mom knew. She, she'd watched a few of them with me. And uh, so I was watching Ellie and, you know, it has a trauma intro and then uh, and then Shelly Winters pops up and my mom goes, what's she doing in this? <laughs> like the Sh- Shelly had, you know, stopped by Tromaville for some fun. So. That's awesome. <laughs> well, um, I'm sure. I do want to shout out my mom in this too, who um, brought me to New York so many times and actually went with me on a tour and of the trauma studios and uh, was always very thoughtful and, you know, at an age when, you know, I think a lot of parents would have not shown their children like what these movies are, perhaps tried to hide things or dissuade them. My mom was always very encouraging and always kept my foot in reality and but also allowed me to really explore and really enjoy uh, how wonderful these films are and to, you know, trust to go and to help build these relationships with these different trauma filmmakers and and have these experiences and I just wanted to publicly say I love my mom so much. I love I love that your mom let you let let you into Tromaville. 
Uh, Even like when, um, one time we went in summer 2001, uh, when Lloyd was at a different convention. So, um, yeah, it was uh, my mom. And then, uh, so, uh, Doug Sackman, Millie Medina, rest in peace. And uh, giving my mom and I a full tour of the whole Truman building. And I'm, I'm like 14 about to turn 15 and I was just so cool. And, um, yeah. And just my mom always being down and I was, a June junior, senior in high school, junior, it was 2003. Um, and, uh, my school's like theater, the theater kids, like we took a drum, uh, theaters, uh, sponsored trip to New York. And even though, you know, when you go on school trips, the things usually decided what to do, you know, Statue of Liberty, Empire State Building, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I said, Hey, we could go see this actual movie studio that's in New York. So, um, yeah. Uh, so the school is actually down. So they brought a group of us to the trauma building. Uh, Jonathan Lees was there. He was a great dude. And um, yeah, so the private Catholic school, we got to see uh, the, the penis monster <laughs> and great moment. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and while we're just on this, just, just mind like trauma's done so much for me and like Lloyd, I'm sure for you too. And for me and just Lloyd, gives so much of his time and expects nothing in return and he's such a jump off inspiration for so many people and i think what i've always viewed of like the trauma team and he really does treat it like a team is it's essentially like somewhat like how andy warhol treated the factory except there wasn't that level of elitism with it he would bring in and, you know, create his own stars and make people seem like a big deal, which is something I, when I got to making movies and really in any of my endeavors, I, whether it was music or whatever, tried to show and, you know, make my friends seem like a big deal who I thought were cool and talented and find the best ways to accentuate their positives and obscure their negatives. So, you know, you could see it with how, you know, trauma, even uh, we mentioned, you know, the, the talents who, you know, had their start with trauma, but you look at the real trauma made stars like a trauma made a star out of joe flyshaker out of uh the recently departed brick bronsky rest in peace and uh, debbie rashan just so there's so much that trauma has done for so many that um you know give give lloyd his flowers while he's here you know give trauma their flowers like because these the special thing about all these movies unlike a lot of other things is they're going to be around forever. Like toxic Avenger is always going to be around. Like for all the, you know, the, the running joke of, you know, trauma has no money, you know, about to go, you know, it's, these are things that have created a global impact permeating so many different parts of pop culture that always find a way with arcing themes to be relevant, even if certain parts of it don't seem to quite, be as you know directly in step with some of the values of today uh, at its core the spirit that these movies were made in uh the issues these things touched ultimately the idea of following your heart and making something that you want to see is something so important and i just feel really fortunate that having lloyd and the trauma team as a hero you know, when you at that age and you decide who your hero is and having it be someone who was number one, so accessible and number two, so in, encouraging and so consistent with that. And I know I'm not the only one who has that story. I don't know, not the only one who, who feels that way about it. And so, yeah, um, I, uh, 
I'm very thankful that uh, we share a planet with uh, trauma. Movies of the future. The movies of the future, but now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think that's like the perfect wrap up for the for the show. Um, hey, Chaz, where can people follow you on the on the socials? Uh, Twitter at Chaz Raps, Instagram at Chaz Raps, and where you can type the eight magic letters at C H A Z R E P S. You can find me. Uh, my music is on all streaming platforms. Anywhere music can be streamed or downloaded or purchased or stolen, you can find me. And yeah, um, if you're an artist, like I don't have a radio show at the moment, but if you're making music, whether it's hip hop or whatever, throw it my way. I'd still love to hear it anyway. Still love music. Filmmaker, send me your film. Just yeah, let's uh, let's let's keep making art. Awesome. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Lego Larry. You can follow the show on Twitter at Talk and Trauma. And always stay traumatized. Dinner candlelit, recognize the sense. Decision handler who never rides a fence. Swing a chandelier, the man appears when needed. Off the radar, off repeated, off the page, he's undefeated. The velveteen voice in silk skin, skilled enough to play dealer's choice and still win. A transatlantic romantic who wrote the book on love and then banned it. Every candid looks like a cover art. Reprimanded, but it never dulls the heart. So what's the secret? What's the formula? Conduct himself in public like an orchestra It's a simple way to give yourself a complex Embrace the disarray, we're all a work in progress Otherwise is a common lie Those who fall within your admirable view It's comparable to how some of your audience sees you Every different path has different passageways There's a lot to face and route to the masquerade And when it gets dark early in the winter time Be intertwined that you crossed another finish line Get your plans straight Get a mandate, give yourself a handshake, make pancakes. And use pure maple syrup from Polly's Pancake Parlor. 672 for 117 Cherry Hill, New Hampshire, 03585. I'm Chaz Kangas. Charles Kaufman's Bread and Sea Bakery are the single greatest cinnamon rolls I've ever had in my life. I swear that is not a joke. Go support the Bread and Sea Bakery. Their cinnamon rolls are fantastic. And while you're snacking on those, keep listening to Talking Troma with Zach Bynes. I'm Chaz Kangas. I watched Plutonium Baby once, and you're watching. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> then just that. Um, yeah.